Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the smoothest glass of Amarillo for your mind, two crickets in a thorn tree. I am half of your host, Nicholas Lorimer, joined as ever with the other half of your host, <laughs> Gabriel Krauser. Nick, you almost made it through that without uh, uh, any verbal ticks. Yeah, it's it's near the end of the year. I had a, a rather excitable uh, uh, dinner party last night in which I may have lost a drinking game, which mm. is not been good for my brain or liver but uh you know <laughs> that's not really your problem that's my problem <laughs> <laughs> well dude, uh, you're you're disguising it well we are soldiers uh of the mind <laughs> and like all soldiers sometimes you shoot straighter than other times um, yes, as, yes as yes. the year winds up yeah. You, you don't get a bullseye on every shot, um, no. but yeah, it's uh, uh, it's 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 been an interesting year, um, and uh, I'm as ever when it gets to the end of the year, I'm tired of the year and I kind of just want to see it pass by. Um, but I would say that genuinely speaking, it's been a pretty fascinating year. I've been interested by a lot of things that have gone in the essay. Yeah, uh, I don't know. You know I just I this year is. Uh, I feel like my one of my favorite. You use the word higgledy piggledy so well, <laughs> and like you've you in my mind it now sits as a technical term in Lorimer's voice. Uh, for for it for, is a technical term. What are you talking about? Exactly. I didn't know that before, and maybe that's one of the good things I learned this year. But like, <laughs> I think this year has been hella higgledy piggledy. Yeah, that's that's. I you know I think that that's not necessarily against my um. My analysis of the year. <laughs> You've got to pick on yourself and quite interesting. Yeah, no, fascinating. But like soap opera, like not going forward, same characters, you know, uh, coming back again and again. Very confusing, very complicated. Yeah. Things being very strange. Um, so what should we talk about first? Uh, Zuma, Zuma got, well, yeah. <laughs> so Zuma got his parole well, cancelled. Okay. Am I correct in saying? Zuma got his parole cancelled. But bef- can't, can't yes. we just start abroad for a minute and then come back home? What do you want to talk about? I want to start with this American case because it's so because I don't really know what else to say about it, excepting okay. a very little bit. Go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. So I was telling Nicholas just before we started recording this that, you know, I listened to the Supreme Court of the United States, uh, oral deliberations, as a bit of a pastime when it's in season. And I try to avoid, it's like, Can I just say that having a Supreme court season and being an avid watcher spectator of Supreme court season is one of the nerdiest things that anyone has ever done at all of human history. <laughs> Dude, it really, it's not that much nerdier than cricket. Like I, no, that's, that's true. That's true. And, and let me qualify <laughs> this. Like if you're watching cricket with your eyeballs, then obviously there's like an, an athletic, balleretic kind of entertainment. The ball, the red ball flies through the blue sky or the white ball flies through the black night sky. It's, it's, it's uh, spectacular. It's dazzling. It's got its moments. In test cricket, it's few and far between. But if you are listening to cricket on the radio, and I know men and some, and some women, but mainly men uh, of a certain age who listen to cricket on the radio – this is as nerdy as that. This is not I, I more nerdy than that. That is who's, the, who's that really famous 
American Later. writer, uh, Bill Bryson, I think it is. I think it was him who was driving around Australia in like yeah. the middle of nowhere. And he, he turned, he's looking for something on the radio to listen to because, you know, that middle bit of Australia is just empty. And he gets this weird radio station and they keep just talking about legs and sides and there's this sort of mumbling and then there's like a little runs sound and then <laughs> it's 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 completely incomprehensible and after listening to it for about 20 minutes he realizes that it's a cricket game on the radio <laughs> he was like is this butter like has unesco written a play in the australian <laughs> Stumps and pitches and legs. Balls. Yeah. I like, I mean, cricket positions, dude, silly mid-off. If you hear a commentator saying, and they've moved him from third leg to silly mid-off. Like. <laughs> you, you'd swear that you were being pranked. <laughs> so that can't be real, but it is for real. And, you know, you have cricket seasons, and sometimes one of the nicest things to do, especially if you're on the, on the road, there, for example, in the Western Cape, driving along like, what is it, the R64? That, you know, not the one that hugs the coast and, and not yeah, the I N1 main about. highway, that like in-between highway goes eventually past some of the like cheap vineyards like Tall Horse and some of the Montague kind of fruity places. Did you drive it through there and listen to a little cricket on the radio, watch some shrubbery go by the window? I think that's a way to pass the day in the summer. Anyway, that is not what I wanted to talk about. I wanted to talk about the, the Skodas case. And this I feel like this might be the last one of the season that I've listened to. Because I, I, I'm not that into the commentary that other people have on it. Um, I'm not against it. And sometimes there's a really interesting case. But it's like if there's something very interesting, I'd probably rather like look up a brief or look up you know a bit of a written judgment or something. The, the news about it um, hasn't really gripped me much, it, with the exception of, like, over the years, you know, when when I was reading in 2018 about, or even earlier, 2017, about the build-up of the Dodds-Jackson case to overturn Roe Wade. You know, that was obviously not something that I would have picked up by listening to lower court proceedings. You know, you've got clever journalists who are listening to what's going on at the Mississippi High Court, effectively, and, you know, is meeting with the donors and the think tanks and the whatever who want to do this thing. And so there's, I'm not saying the news is never interesting, but for the most part, the case has come along and I like to sort of click on a case blind, um, a little bit like, you know, sometimes watching a movie on Netflix. But So I feel like this is the last one I got to, and it's a long preface, but this is, a, but I didn't listen to the case properly because... I was pretty schnoozy and also because I was like, wow, I don't want to listen to this half-heartedly. Like I want to go sit in a park <laughs> and like really drink this one in. So here's the case, roughly speaking. In America, like in South Africa, UK and most places, there's something like a children's act, which says that when the law is touching on the affairs of children, uh, the children's interests must come first. And there's a sort of qualifier of uh, like, you know, if the children have, you know, solid legal parents, then there's a lot of deference to the parents to determine what those interests are. But when I say when the law comes in to touch the 
touch things. It's like, you know, when that parental uh, thing has broken down. And so that's why in America, you know, it's not just if you get divorced, uh, when they figure out where the kids should go, that's not part of, there's no prenup you can sign. That's like, I'll keep the kids. It's like, no, if you get divorced, the judge is going to figure out what the, what they think is in the best interest of the kids. Right. And kids can divorce their parents. They can get like, what do they call it? Legal emancipation, I think it is. There we go. Um, and and so on down the line. Uh, so that's how it usually is. There is an explicit uh, case in which the children's interests do not come first. And, and that is if they are Native American, Amerindian uh, children. And they've come from a reserve. Then the rule is something like, if there is an American Indian foster family that's willing to take them in, then they should go to that foster family, even if it's not in the best interest of the child. And so you think, okay, well, is this a bit touchy-feely? It's like, no. I mean, the test case is, and there are a few of these cases, because there are, uh, I should just give a bit of like uh, background. There are a lot of, there are a lot more children being put up for adoption uh, in that group, then there are adults uh, putting themselves up to adopt children in that group. And part of this is social dislocation and dysfunction, you know, like alcohol abuse, high unemployment. There are problems on many reserves, as they are called. Uh, and those are the kinds of things if they lead to domestic violence and so on that, that, that increase the rate at which um, you have you know, single parent homes and the higher the rate of single parent homes, generally speaking, the higher the rate of like, you know, just uh, moms who give up to and, and you have. Right. Like, it's just sort of general social collapse. Yeah. In a lot of these places. It's unfortunate. And it also means that there's like not a hell of a lot of, you know, families are like, well, we've already had a couple of kids and we'd, we want to help out some other kids that we'll bring up as our own or, uh, you know, we're rich and we're gay and, you know, we're going to adopt or like you know, whatever the, the kinds of reasons are, the ways that you find foster families. Um, amongst other things, it just requires uh, money and there's not that much money and there's not that much numbers. Okay. So I know, you've got these I know that adoption in the U.S. is extremely expensive. Yeah. It's neither of us could afford it. Definitely. <laughs> I mean, together, we couldn't afford it. You and your girlfriend, me and my fiance, like if we pulled all our salaries together, we still couldn't afford it. Um, so these kids go up for adoption in the test case and they've been, you know, they're born, you know, like mom gives them up in the hospital and they go up to a foster family and uh, it's a great family. And it's four years later and there's been no issues at all. It's a middle-class family. You know, he was infertile or she was infertile, whatever it is. So they've decided to adopt this kid. They're bringing it up. They're filing for full-on adoption. They're feeding, clothing, loving, housing, uh, schooling, everything, these kids. And these kids are loving these parents. Mommy, daddy, that's the only words they know to call them by. Problem is the parents are white. What a terrible problem. Or not American Indian. Maybe I'm assuming they're white. Maybe they're black. Maybe they're uh, you know Asian American. Whatever that means. Um, 
but anyway, certainly not American Indian, and I think what I think they might have been. So the law says that that this interest, the interest in the tribe maintaining its integrity by getting first dibs. So I mean, what's supposed to happen in this case? What the one side is arguing, what the government effectively, you know, sort of arguing. It's like, uh, although I'm not saying that they're prosecuting a, uh, attorney general is doing this, but so the one side of the case is saying to stick to the law. This kid needs to be taken from that foster home that has been in from birth, from just after birth to four years old, where it's being loved and everything is going well, explicitly on the reason that those parents are the wrong race, and it should be, and should now go through the trauma of having new parents um, because the interest of the tribe in keeping people of its bloodline in its corral, if it has foster parents available, trumps the interest in the child in not going through the trauma of losing its parents and needing it to start afresh. And I think it is the sharpest kind of Instance I've actually ever heard in the 21st century of a law really going all the way to saying how much race matters more than everything else. Like we think this tribe's racial interest, its bloodline interest, trumps an innocent child's interest in in not in losing in not losing its parents, both of its parents, the only parents it's ever known. And so when I heard so, this case being described, I kind of was. I, no, don't find it. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, no, it's it, it's it is uh, to say it euphemistically wacky. Um, apologies for the heavy rain sound. Uh, so my sense of why there would be a rule like this is because uh, the U.S. did go through that period where it tried to forcibly assimilate uh, Native Americans into uh, sort of mainstream American culture, and part of that was taking kids away from their families or from their extended families and putting them with a white family with explicitly the argument that this was the best thing for the kids. So I presume that's why such a sort of bizarre racial law exists, right? I think that is right. Um, As I said, I didn't listen to the case fully, so I don't, I'm not in a good position to answer questions and I, and I think we should probably move on. Like I'm keen to listen to it again, but I'm sort of flagging this. Like, um, a couple of points. One of them is that, I mean, as we were saying before, the very Indian situation is often like a Bantustan situation, like quite explicitly. Yeah, not not is like is a in some ways. Yes, is it is a Bantustan system, and what that means is that there is separate jurisdiction, that there are different notions of property rights, different notions of whether you can call the police, and and through the years the the. SCOTUS, the Supreme Court of the United States, has slowly but surely kind of chipped away at um, the sense in which American Indian reserves are their own countries. Uh, and this is, the, you know, Bantustans are supposed to be their own countries. Their own countries, but with no real tax base, with no real border control, uh, with no real independent police or military force that could really put them not even, never mind parity, like Canada doesn't have parity with America, but at least it has mutual respect. Uh, There's no kind of proper uh, 
Yeah, so they're the, not really treated like independent countries. They're treated like vassals. The way it's states. described uh, uh, on Wikipedia is: is an area, an Indian reservation, is an area of land held and governed by a federally recognized Native American tribal nation whose government is accountable to the U.S. Bureau of Indian Affairs and not to the state government in which it's located. The Bureau of Indian Affairs. I mean, it is the 21st century, <laughs> but it's not always very um so so i think that part of what's gross is this is this disrespect part of what's difficult is how do you do the reintegration part of with in in a legal respectful way like how do you say no we're going to treat this area like any other area same taxes same rules but not with this you know separate the esteem market and the social engineering market like we're precisely not going to uh, as the federal government to try and force integration or kidnap your babies or i don't know there there are there what i'm trying to say is that i think that the people who live in those communities uh have uh firstly there's good reason for them to think of them as communities it's not like sometimes that word is used really vaguely like the indian community in south africa it's like oh, i really don't think there's a meeting between all the indians in south africa yeah, uh, certainly not. <laughs> there's like a lot of religion divides you know, and, like, and language divides and, you know, Gujaratis and Tamils and Punjabis and all that kind of thing. So, yeah, yeah, no, I agree that that term is often abused. So one should be wary of it, especially because like in South Africa, if you're Bangladeshi, you're Indian. If you're Sri Lankan, you're Indian. If you're Pakistani, like a lot you're Indian. A lot of Muslim Pakistanis are <laughs> <laughs> yeah, something which back in, in Pakistan gets you beaten up. Um, <laughs> really in trouble. So we're talking about American Indians, which is a whole other kind of Indian. Anyway, you know, Indian turns out to be one of these magically elastic words. And uh, and and so it is complicated. And, I, you know, I and I do think, but it, 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 it's kind of, it was just kind of amazing. And so because it's complicated, you can trace back, as you're saying, Nick, to moments where you're like, okay, but I can see how this law might have been passed in good faith as a way of trying to compensate for some other terrible thing that the government was doing. Nevertheless, it's, it was, I found it kind of flummoxing to hear um, justices on the SCOTUS sort of um, ask questions in oral that just sounded like, I mean, you never know. We'll have to see where the judgment goes and what the written opinions are. But you know, justices who sounded very much like they were saying that they think that the that the racial interests of of uh, tribal solidarity and integrity should does trump and should trump um, the child's interest, and uh, oof, just hit me for six to go back to the cricket metaphor. Anyway, so that was American law. Maybe I've I've gotten that off my chest. We can I can say about South African law. The special thing is. That on the same day, basically, the court said that an old white dude who murdered a black struggle hero should be released, uh, and that an old black dude, the former president Jacob Zuma, should be sent back to jail. Um, and that way of looking at it, uh, you know, triggered uh, yeah, well, that's <laughs> various people into saying, you know, the the criminal justice system is totally white monopoly. Yeah, well, it is. It has somehow been captured by white monopoly capital, you know, under our noses. Even though it's not clear that anyone who might be called white monopoly capital has the appointment 
powers. They've wormed their way into the system. They've somehow captured it, and now it's doing the business of of, of uh, evil, malevolent forces behind the scenes. Because well, there's no alternative one, explanation. I'll tell you one person who said that, Sali Africa Mapaila, who is the head of this Secretary General of the South African Communist Party, uh, and who, whom I had the privilege to the, debate for a The guy who replaced uh, Bladen Zamanda, yeah? Yeah. Mm. He said, I mean, he didn't say white minority capital. He said, uh, our judiciary is being captured by foreign interests. Oh, okay. <laughs> Interesting. And who are these foreign interests? Has, have, have Polish imperial, nationalists captured, power. Our, <laughs> captured our, our judicial system? <laughs> I don't know, man. It is. It was... It was interesting debating with him about it because I kind I, I almost felt sorry for him. So our position is, at least my position, is that uh, Janusz Wallace's crime, assassinating Chris Harney, 1993, around April, year before our election, very delicate time, that that is kind of the highest level of crime that any individual has committed uh, in South Africa since the since the Union, since the history of this country started in 1910. So I'm not saying that there you you know I'd be interested to hear your views if you can think of like worse crimes. I'm not making the claim that there aren't worse crimes. I'm making the claim that it's whatever the top tier top draw. Uh, you know, a this is not an A student. This is an A plus student, right? It's not like a serial killer kills you know twenty people. You, you might think that's worse, or like a reckless taxi driver, you know, kills a busload of people. That is terrible. But like this, um, only one person was killed. But the intention was, and it was a plausible intention, to draw the country into civil war. So just a, a sort of a point here. Um, there are lots of terrorists around the world who attempt to start something by killing someone or blowing up a building or something like this. Um, I remember that that monstrous dude from New Zealand who went and shot up the mosque uh, yeah. was specifically In, doing it with the aim of starting yeah. some kind of, of global race war. Should, He's the one who did the sign. The like, didn't he do the? Um, yeah, every like, okay yeah, sign is like a. Yeah, 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 yeah. As a white supremacist um, thing. Sorry. Yeah. So I think, uh, and and I take it that you already have partially covered this by saying plausibly have created a civil war in South Africa, which is what Janusz Wall's kind of aim here was. Yeah. Um, but should we also take into account the actual consequences, as in? If there was no civil war, does that mean that it's not as bad as if there had been a civil war? I mean, I would say yes. Um, that that question in philosophy is called the question of moral luck. In the in the modern vocabulary, Thomas Nagel uh, coined the term, I think, or at least popularized it, and he made the following observation: uh, If you drunk drive home. Uh, after a party, then that's bad behavior. And if the police catch you, you should get uh, a straf, uh, you know, 
a fine, get thrown in the drunk tank, whatever it is. You should get punished. But if you drive home and you like, there's a kid riding a bicycle at three in the morning, like going around, you know, throwing the newspapers. In America, they really do do that. And you knock over that kid and you kill it. Then you've got to get a, a really, really, really heavy punishment. And his observation is, you know, if you're drunk driving home and you're speeding, um, the difference between those two scenarios might not be anything under your control. It might right, just it's be whether lucky. the kid was doing his rounds or not. Yeah. And so he said, you know, where do your intuitions go here? Because um, at the moment, the system that we seem to have is that we think there is moral luck. We think that the person who drunk drives home speeding and kills the child is worse morally than the person who drunk drove home and just by better luck uh, didn't actually harm anyone. And uh, so usually um, if you ask people to cash out uh, a moral system, they'll say there shouldn't be any luck at all. If you're morally better or worse, we've left luck out of it. Uh, Handsomer or uglier, richer or poorer, famous or less famous, you know, that's all the luck stuff. But moral stuff is supposed to be leaving luck out of the equation. And Nagel mm. pushes quite hard on, on, on whether you can really get there um, and what kind of sacrifices you'd have to make. And you can imagine, like, uh, in this case, either you treat the drunk driver who harms no one as if they killed a child, you know, so you throw them in jail 20 years just for drunk driving once or whatever, 10 years. Or you treat the one who killed the child like the same as someone who harmed no one. You know, you give them a night in the drunk tank and you send them home. Neither of those solutions seem satisfying. So, so, so I take the lesson from that to be that although we've got to be very careful of applying this principle, um, you do look at what was on the front of people's minds. You do look at um, their, you know, stated intentions or their directly inferable intentions. And you look at the consequences, uh, and those all have to be considered. But the, the hardest thing to consider is not just the consequence, is the plausible, is that plausibility right, side right. in the middle. Because and with a drunk driver, you know, if, you, if you're drunk driving and you're going at 20 kilometers an hour, and then you, you kill someone because they're sort of camouflaged, you know, they fell over. It's like a, an insane person that fell asleep on the road wearing right. a black Or someone black who jumps out in front of your car. You know, then the fact that you were drunk, that doesn't plausibly connect. So there's got to be a real um, uh, yeah. sort of fine-grained control connection. You know, to what extent was this really under your control? That, that question needs to be answered seriously to, to determine the thing. And I think in his case, you, it's important that there wasn't a civil war. But my sense is that if Nelson Mandela doesn't go on the TV uh, for a live broadcast which had the Nats very worried because, you know, what if he what if he says, you know, I'm going to be peaceful, I'm going to be peaceful, I'm going to be peaceful, I'm going to call for peace, and they give him a feed into every television screen in the country and people were glued to their television screens. My second memory was being glued to that TV screen as a three-year-old because it was the first time that I, like the smell of the stench of terror was was in the home. Um and, and, you know, the other time was when a, an impi marched past our house in, the, in central Joburg as a four-year-old just, you know, before the election. I can remember that. So, anyway, um, he, if Mandela had gone on screen and said, dude, Chris Harney was killed, 
and I don't trust the government of the day to do a proper investigation. Uh, I think we are going to, there are people's courts at the time. There are extrajudicial executions, often by the form of necklacing. Uh, but the people's courts are already established to deal with Tsotsis, to deal with uh, political deviance, to deal with Mpimpi, et cetera, et cetera. If Mandela had said the people's court is going to have to uh, uh, try. Do justice. Yeah. Is, yeah. Then I think that there would have been a civil war because I think that there were, uh, the as Anthea records, Dr. Anthea Jeffrey, in the people's war, by that stage, by 1993, Mkwonto was entirely allowed back into the country with lots and lots of arms. They didn't have to give up their arms almost at all. Uh, so there were huge amounts of, of, of munitions around, uh, lots and lots of angry dudes. And, uh, you know, in the 80s, in the 70s, in the 60s from Sharpeville, uh, a kind of my my black uprising uh, to slit the throat of whiteness never really happened because the Nats were so good at doing their job. They they were uh, sometimes played cricket and sometimes they were just ruth ruthless brutes. Uh, but in in pretty much all of the time until 1990, they were um, they outnumbered, they outgunned, uh, they outmoneyed the enemy by so many orders of magnitude that they, uh, you know, they had spies. They did have lots and lots of spies inside the ANC yes. and the SAC. <laughs> Hence the ANC's continuing paranoia about such a thing. It was hard. It, you couldn't have a My My Revolution because of actual uh, realpolitik considerations of warfare, basically. Um, but by 1993, I think the balance of forces have shifted significantly. Uh, I think that in 1993, if you have something like a Boipatong, uh, you know, if you've got like 10,000, 5,000, 2,000 dudes going into a little white suburb in the middle of nowhere and pulling old ladies out by their hair and smashing children's skulls in the side of walls uh, in the name of revenge, I think the Avia beer, I think that, you know, those oaks who splintered away from the Nationalist Party and uh, called uh, de Klerk a traitor to his race uh, and, you know, ended up kind of in the dustbin of history. 1993, they've got enough guns. They've got enough friendlies inside the upper echelons of the police and the army that they can do tremendous revenge damage themselves. And I see that plausibly spiraling. I... I agree. That's definitely plausible. Um, how plausible do you think this interpretation of the situation in 1993 is? Uh, the ANC realizes that it's basically won the negotiations. It's known that since 2000, and so it's since 1992, and it thinks to itself, "Okay, we really don't want to get into a fight here because maybe we win because, the, as you say, the forces are better in our in our favor than they've been for a very long time." Yeah. But also, maybe if we're just a little bit patient, we'll be all right. Uh, and in fact, we will have total victory there without the need to fight. And therefore, in the real politics sense, there was the worst thing that could happen for them as well was the killing of Chris Hardy, because you know, now they have to manage their own side, which desperately wants revenge. And maybe they want revenge too, but uh, they don't want to also lose everything when they're so close to victory. And so yeah, in mean, that sense, there wasn't a real chance of, of, of civil war. 
No. Okay. So I, I think you're right to imply, and I'll say, uh, I think the single most concentrated, what's the greatest thing Mandela ever did in like within 20 words? You know, there's there's got to be two options, I think. One option is when he says uh, at the end of the treason trial that he's prepared to die for his values and his values are to prevent white domination and to prevent black domination. Uh, a very clear expression uh, of, you know, the African and African National Congress not being uh, racially exclusive and not being uh, such as to fit with the current uh, shape of the National Democratic Revolution. Um, and and he's and what makes that moment so magical is that there really is a good chance that he's going to be executed at the time. Again, he's not executed, but there is a real chance that he will be. Uh, and right. the he reason doesn't that know how it's going to end yeah. up. And the, and the arguments for not executing him are that in showing mercy, the Nats show themselves to be... Uh, you know, not vicious bigots in the same way that right. They t they take away because if that's his final words and then he gets executed, there's a much the the power martyr, of those words is is even greater than uh, than what did happen, which is that they didn't execute him. And instead, they kind of work on him uh, constantly uh, to be a negotiating partner for you know the the afterwards. Not constantly from the beginning, but he's earmarked from then as being like a really smart black dude. Uh, where you know some smart white supremacists are like you know this is this is the kind of guy that we would want to talk to um, if we were put in a position where we had to talk. So magnanimity, mercy, grace uh, was the smart play on the side of the white supremacists, uh, and on that basis, you could say, well, if Mandela was really smart, he could have just been bluffing. Because he could have been like, you know, I'm going to say this. I'm going to say I'm prepared to die for it. Uh, but actually, whatever I say, it doesn't matter. If they want to kill me, they can kill me. If they want to keep me, they can keep me. And if they're smart, they're going to keep me. And so you kind of discount the relevance of the counterfactual because uh, the fact that actually happened uh, was, was the smarter choice. Um, I think uh, in the same way, Mandela, maybe his greatest moment actually was in 1993 when he said, step down. No one's allowed to go for revenge in the name of Chris Harney. The government's going to deal with this. Um, because he uh, he exercised real leadership there. I think he really changed the outcome. I think if he hadn't gone up, there would have been reprisal attacks and those could have, you know, like Romeo and Juliet spiraled out of control. Tit for tat, you know, one of us for one, two of you, two of you for 10 of us, 10 of us for 100 of you, back and forth. Uh, I think even just silence could very easily have led to that. And... So because what so you're right, Mandela made the master stroke. He not only uh, kept the ANC on the path to victory that it was already pretty well secured at the time. He actually accelerated or elevated their their journey on that path by um, making them seem far more reasonable, right? Because yeah. that would allay fears of all the white white conservative reactionary types and the Americans. If there was any doubt yes. in America. <laughs> This yes. guy, the communist, gets killed, and Mandela's like, well, you know, suck it up. Uh, that doesn't sound like what a proper communist would do. Uh, yeah, that know, doesn't that sound like worry. someone that you need to parachute the whole CIA in there right now. <laughs> Which is the kind of thing that was, you know, an option. So, 
So I think that um, if I look at the war in Ukraine uh, and I think how easily it could have been averted and how smart it would have been to avert it and how little uh, smart action it would have taken, um, you know, in my analysis from both sides, uh, not just from one side, um, I, I feel like I'm, we're, we're living uh, co-evil with a great example where, um, yeah, if you'd bet on human intelligence and farsightedness and, uh, <laughs> you know, proper game theoretic uh, evaluation of, of how to uh, deal with difficult situations, uh, then you would have thought there's no ways. There's no ways. And, you know, World War I, Gavrila Princip kills Archduke Franz Ferdinand. Like, you know, <laughs> uh, it's not like it could have gone the other way. Uh, in fact, if anyone between the German leaders, the Russian leaders, the Austro-Hungarian leaders, if any of them had been smart, properly smart, consistently for just 30 days in a row, there would have been no World War I. So, so that's so you just can't rely on that smartness, and I think that he had as good a chance going in. I think he right. had a better chance going in of starting a civil war in South Africa than Princip had going in starting a civil war, uh, starting a war across Europe. Like Princip had a pretty good chance, similar chance of like starting some like further Serbian, maybe Serbian, Austro-Hungarian, whatever kind of military action. Um, but that's not what he wanted. He wanted like a, a much bigger deal, and. That's where I would place it. I would say that Gavrila Princip literally was taking more of a moonshot than Yanis uh, Vallas. And and part of the reason that I feel very, very little human empathy for Yanis Vallas is that I think he had a very decent chance of ruining tens of millions of people's lives. Yeah, no, <laughs> I'm with you on that one. Uh, okay, but so what is what is our take then about, you know, was the right decision to give him parole. Totally. It's totally the right decision. So this is why I was saying I felt slightly sorry for Solly because Solly and I, like, I think Solly would have, I mean, obviously Solly would have loved it, the head of the Communist Party. If he could say, I'm a communist, and he pointed at me the whole time and he's like, you know, this, these uh, capitalists, these foreign interests, these, and then when he was talking about Yanis Vallis, these white racists, uh, who just wanted to kill black people, like pointing at me while he's saying that on live television primetime. It's like, is not my favorite thing in the world, uh, which no. is why I probably didn't feel that sorry for him. But I kind of felt sorry for him because I don't have to fake it to say that uh, my gut uh, would have preferred for violence to be executed when he was sentenced to death. I think if there is a kind of crime that deserves execution, it's it, it's treason. Uh, or something like this, something that is plausibly going to lead to a massive war, plausibly going to lead to millions of people uh, suffering seriously and hundreds of thousands of people being killed. Um, and, uh, you know, the the judgment, the Supreme Court of Appeal judgment, which didn't order a stay on his, which effectively ordered a stay on his death penalty uh, sentence, and said, you know, we need to think about this again because there's another court case being heard going up to the Concord now uh, to challenge whether the death penalty is okay. And that case, you know, had to, this is 1994, that case then had to carry over to 1996 because they didn't want to decide it on the interim constitution. Then we got the new full-blown South African constitution. And then the court had to hear how the right to dignity 
and the right to life is squared with the state's um, allowance to execute people. And, you know, people, it wasn't quite as cut and dried. Um, I, But anyway, basically they said that execution is right, off the books. Right, they commuted his death sentence and then, yeah. Uh, and then he got life this life prison. imprisonment. And just by the way, you know, it's like it does seem like you could still get the death penalty for treason in South Africa. Uh, so beware. Um, but the... Damn, I'm going to have to cancel all my treason plans for this weekend. Uh, take it easy. you got you got free time now. You can uh, just go for romantic walks in the park. So I think the... Part of the, the 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 point I'm trying to make is that the SEA said in this judgment that state is execution that he should get whatever the harshest punishment is that's legally permissible in the country, wherever that lands, that's what he should get, and I feel like that's true. Uh, I agree, and I don't have to fake it to agree. And I think Solly, you know, um, in that sense, didn't get to box with the kind of partner that he was looking for. Um, he wanted to box with someone who, and I know some of, I know some reasonable people, shall I say, uh, in our circles, very close, who think that Vallis is not, I don't want to say not such a bad guy, but who kind of think that um, people who get worked up about what a terrible crime is that he committed um, are exaggerating or or misconstruing things. And I don't feel like that. I just feel like this is the highest category of crime that you, anyone that you can name has committed in the history of South Africa. There's, there's, there's not a category above it. And so there can't be a category of punishment above it either. And so in that sense, Ali and I agree. And so where we disagree is, is that he's, he thinks that it's really, really important Um to it's so important to keep Vallis behind bars that you should deviate from the truth and you should deviate from the word the words written down in our constitution and the words written down in our statute books so like he did that by saying things like this guy's unrepentant he never said he's sorry so that's not true Vallis right. said he was sorry in person he said he was sorry through a lawyer's letter and he said he was sorry through um, a personal letter. And then, you know, when I raised that, and and by the way, Minister of Justice Ronald Lamola said, this guy showed remorse. This is one of the reasons we should grant him parole. Ronald Lamola's legal team had to explain his reasoning for denying him parole. And they said, here are the positive reasons we should grant him parole. He was a commendable soul, uh, prisoner. He never had any disciplinary issues. Uh, a, a, a suite of sociologists and psychologists have tested him and analyzed him, and they say that he's reformed. Uh, there is no plausible chance of reoffense. Um, he has shown remorse, uh, and uh, he's served the, well over the time uh, that he would need to serve in order to be eligible for parole. And there is an address where he's already ready to go. Like there's basically the law requires one of the considerations to be whether if granting you parole is going to kind of put you on the streets in a, you know, because that obviously has implications about whether you're going to do crime again, whether the state's going to have to take care of you. Might as well just keep taking care in prison. No, that's all qualified as well. 
He's fine. He's good to go. So it's like A through H, everything on the list. So what reason did they give? So they said the reason we're not letting him out is because of the nature and severity of the crime, the original crime, and because of the wording in the um, uh, in the opinion attached to the judgment. And that wording is the SEA of 1994 saying that he should get whatever the highest legal punishment is. And so then you get this interesting legal thing where it's like the law says in South Africa that like life imprisonment, let's say, is 25 years. Actually, it was like 20 years when he was arrested and you're supposed to get the notion of life imprisonment according to when you got it. In the Nats days, life imprisonment was quite different because if they really didn't like what you did, they would just hang you. They killed but you, anyway, right? yeah. Uh, so our law says once you have served, our law says explicitly, um, and by the way, the reason that this has come about is that high courts across this country from the late 90s through the 2000s, like in the in the boom time of South Africa when Trevor Manuel was running fiscal discipline and the economy doubled in nominal terms and, and three million new jobs were added and so on. Uh, the high court judges, especially like some of the new ones coming in, uh, were heavy-handed. So murderers and rapists... Like judges were trying to do everything that they could to put these people behind jars, bars forever. And then the Supreme Court of Appeal and the Concord was often stepping in to say, we have to have some limit to how much power a judge has to prevent you from ever being eligible for parole. And out of that came this rule that the judge can say, you are not eligible for parole until you've served 25 years. But it can't say 26 years. 25 is the maximum denial of parole that a judge can write into their uh, written opinion. So according to the Constitutional Court, um, the SEA's comments that he should get whatever is the highest legal standard, uh, that that just doesn't – it wasn't formally enough expressed to be seriously considered. But that's kind of a weak argument. Here's the serious argument. Although – a sentence is 25 years, and the judge can say you're not allowed parole for 25 years. But after that, they can't prevent the parole board from considering you. And the parole board has to consider you as soon as you're eligible. And the and the statute says, the Correctional Service Act statute says, once you're eligible, if there is nothing to block you from getting parole, you must be released on parole as soon as possible. So the rules are really trying to you know set up these guardrails. And it's like, but once you've ticked the boxes, you've got to go. Got to let them go. So in, in this instance... The, the troubling thing is this. If you are in jail for 25 years because you committed a heinous crime, you murdered someone and, you know, there was a really good chance this could cause civil war. And this is not violence because he had a different sentencing regime, but you get 25 years and, and the judge says, and you're not eligible for parole one day before the end of that 25 years. If you kill someone... Even if you go for a normal crime, you know, normal murder, whatever. If you kill someone in jail or like you behave badly, even if you don't kill someone, if you just perform ill-disciplined acts, that can deny you parole because it can be evidence that you're likely to reoffend, keep you this, doing the psychiatric treatment. That you're not really, punishing. you know, remorseful in any sense because you're just willing to go out and commit crimes again. You can be kept behind bars in South Africa for the rest of your life if you don't behave well in prison. So in that sense, the highest legal punishment is 
life imprisonment as in imprisonment until you die. And so on that basis, that's one of the, you know, basically that's the, the gravamen, as the South African lawyers say, of the argument from uh, Lamola's side. He was saying, we think that lawfully, uh, we're not saying we can keep him for life, but we're saying we can keep him for longer because of the nature of the severity of the crime. We've got to keep him for as long as we can. And by the way, the standard for as long as you can is set by a holistic consideration of all of the factors. But on a holistic consideration of all of the factors, you could theoretically keep someone for life. So we're not saying we're going to do that um, because there must be a constant reevaluation. Uh, but uh, our position is theoretically you could keep him for life. So that you, so a fortiori, uh, therefore extra with extra vuma, that's um, a five dollar word right there. Oh, dude, that was my favorite Princeton word. Like you know, it just you know, it's like uh, driving is better than walking. A fortiori, driving a Ferrari is better than walking. I think that's the first example. Anyway, so it's like you know, if if we can generally on a holistic basis keep someone in jail for the rest of their lives, as long as we keep reviewing them for parole on an honest, good faith basis, you know. We can we can certainly do that in this case. Um, here's what the court said was wrong with that. They said, um, we all agree that you can't, it's not lawful to just say you're going to jail and we're throwing away the key. You cannot make the decision now that, no one can make the decision now that someone is going to stay in jail forever until they die. Uh, if they're be behaving badly, you say, well, for another two years or a year or whatever, but you've got to look again. And why is that? That's because we've got a system of correctional services. There has to be a chance of, re of redemption at the end of it and reintegration into society, which I think is very good. Crime, shame, and reintegration. Right. Robert Braithwaite, I've talked about you know lots. That's where the esteem and this comes is, from. This is not surprising considering there was a kind of sort of, I would say, uh, there was a distinct thread of lefty NGO kind of view of the world that went into the production of our constitution and stuff like that. Uh, and that's exactly the kind of thing that would come out of the circles, which is the view that, well, you know, prison is about correcting bad behavior, reforming people, uh, not, necess not necessarily first about punishing. Yeah. And, I mean, I think it's, by the way, it's a great idea. You know, the notion of cosmic justice, an eye for an eye, uh, that kind of, if only, you know, the lefties who saw through that uh, and were like, no, restorative justice is better. If only they had seen uh, the same point at a, at a social level to see that. You know, this eye for an eye thing at, at a racial level or at a national level is stupid. They would have done even better. <laughs> indeed, indeed. <laughs> but as it is, they, they, they only got halfway there. And that's the law that we have. And so the courts wanted to apply that law. And they said, and they said, Lamola, here's your problem. You're saying you, this, this guy right now can't be released. He's, he's ticked every single box in terms of what he's done in prison. But he can't be released because of his original crime. And because of the comments about that crime that were originally made in 1994 by the court. That's the only reason you're saying he can't be released. Now also you're telling us, with the same lip-mouth-tongue combination, that he can be released at a later stage on reconsideration. And then Zondo writes, and I'm paraphrasing, but it's pretty plain language. What are you talking about? If you're saying no now on the basis of this reason alone, and this reason can't change, how in two years could you come back and say, no, 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 release him on parole? Why? 
because now the, the nature and severity of the original crime and the original notes, now that doesn't justify keeping him anymore. See, there's no ways that you could explain changing your mind through time from this year to next year on the basis of something that's not changing because it happened in 1994. He says, to think you could explain such a thing is an absurdity and it follows, because it's inexplicable what, how you could change your mind, it follows as night follows day that your decision and your thinking is irrational. And I was like, dude, this guy, what a beautiful, beautiful destination of a point that also resonates across this country. Like people who are like, no, apartheid is still to blame now for everything. Like what's, what, what is ever going to change between 2022 and 2024? If you, if you think at this stage, everything goes back to that point. Like you're going to ignore all of the other factors anyway. And I, and I, but. Uh, I, and, and just to say my, that while Zonda, Zonda wrote the, the, the thing, it was a unanimous decision which is interesting for a case that should be, I, I would say, is a, in certain circles, very politically contentious, right? Which I think is quite a good sign. I think it's very commendable. I think it's very commendable. And I think that bit of analysis, that sort of he went out of his way to do it that way. He Zondo analyzed it a different way to show it as irrational, but then he sort of went out of his way to do this thing of saying, if you think the only way to explain your decision is because of something that happened in 1994, and you're saying that that decision must be up for review across time and that at a future date you could make a different but it decision. it also can't be That doesn't make sense. Nothing has changed, right? Then you don't make sense. I think that that is just, you know, I've been, I, I was the only dude in South Africa that I can remember just about, just about, like not fawning on Zondo during the Zondo Commission. I went, I went out of my way to criticize that thing repeatedly because I thought, that it is a distraction and a waste of money, et cetera, et cetera. But he has been doing yeah, a lot no, of he's, saying a lot of important things. I, I, I agreed with you during the Zonda Commission. Yeah. I, <laughs> I said the same things. Yeah, I well. agreed with you. I, I think you often on, the, often on the same podcasts. <laughs> yes, yes. And uh, we were totally wrong. Zondo is 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 brave and clever and he's done some really good stuff here. And I'm very happy that he's Chief Justice. Yeah. Yeah. So so, you know, so what Sully got left to do in that kind of situation, you know, it's like I'm an R and like get lost in technicalities and try and bamboozle people and misrepresent facts, say this and that. So um, I think that... Uh, here's, here's, a, here's a tangential hot take, which is that Zondo was uh, not necessarily the, 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 the solid guy he's been he has been since becoming sort of rising to national prominence until he saw the absolute levels of rot that had set into the country during the Zonda commission. And that this was a, a sort of awakening moment for him that has changed his perspective. Dude, isn't that a beautiful thought that Zonda, Raymond Zonda was paying attention to his own commission and that that changed the 60 year old dude's life. And he was like, Oh my word. We have to... I've got to, I've got to fix some things. <laughs> wow. That is a beautiful, beautiful. Oh, dude. I'm, I think that's a fabulous idea. And it might be, it's, it's plausible. You know, I think people do learn. No, and who man, knows? Only he knows. Who knows? <laughs> Only he knows. And, and maybe one day after he's retired, he'll, he'll, he'll tell us one way or another in a, in a wonderful memoir. I would be very keen to read it. But anyway, so, you know, I want to I want to contrast this case with um, when Cesar and Paul Walsh said 
you can tell IRA's racist. Maybe it's about someone else, like because they they criticize uh, people singing "Kill the Boer," but they defend people waving the old uh, apartheid flag. And I was like, "Oh my lord, dude!" Like, yes, I don't think anyone should be arrested for waving a flag. I also don't think anyone should be arrested for singing a song. But if you are in front of an angry mob and you say, go do violence, and the mob takes you literally, and you could have predicted that they take you literally, uh, then that's called incitement. And there's a law against it. But, but it's like, that's all details. Like, I've lost him. In fact, I've lost his whole audience, right? Because the point of the exercise in his case is to is to brag, is to humble brag about how important race is to us. That, you know, even if even if what I'm saying does sound kind of dumb, even if the other side has technical points that they can raise against us, the essential point that I'm making is, is, where is like, you know, this is, the, the you know, uh, something about racial loyalty. And, and I think that that's very much the narrative this week that um, race hustlers try to spin about the Wallace-Zuma coincidence. Uh, and I just, I haven't really seen it work anywhere. Like I was listening to Power FM. I was listening to Metro FM. I was on JJ Tabane's show on ENCA. Like it didn't work in any of those places. And I've seen. Right. And I, if and it the, was going to work anywhere, it was going to be those places. I saw the flag thing work in all of those places. Yeah. So uh, I think that, I think that it's kind of. It's interesting. Maybe it's because they're so. Maybe it's because he's so old, and the younger generation. I don't know. There is something sometimes that feels a bit more serious about the generation above us. Cooler, you know. They made more money. Like I don't know. Our generation in our adulthood, Nick. In the last twelve, where, how old were you twelve years ago? Uh, seventeen. South Africa's made no money since you were seventeen. You know, like per year. We make so, as much money per person as we did back South then. South Africa has, in other words, been stagnant literally my entire adult life. Well, that's nice. <laughs> yeah. So it's like we are a pretty crappy generation. Like the, our elders managed to go through the 1994 transition. Uh, 20, 25,000 people murdered in the, in the People's War. Uh, very dynamic, very horrible, very amazing. Center of the world's, uh, you know, uh, fawning attention for 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 quite a stint uh most beloved leader huge economic growth huge rollout of social grants you know 15 million roughly houses water electricity all that you know in our in our adulthood like we've just been flipping lame i don't think we've had as interesting uh cultural output our theater was like the best in the world in the 80s and 90s our theater scenes not that sometimes not even existent uh, there's so many ways in which we're a little bit lamer and like maybe the flag kill the boer thing is like the youthful like lame it's so flat in any event that that the the appeal to race hustling kind of works whereas like with these old people like Jacob Zuma and Yanis Wallace like people can feel the weight of the difference between those two cases uh, and feel how it's not racist to want Zuma to go to jail and to think that the law should be followed insofar as it, uh, it now says that violence should be released uh, because, because it's so obvious in those old bones and those, and those histories that reach back into a real time when, you know, real people were doing real things. Mm. 
I don't know. Maybe that's very romantic. But in any event, it's been like uh, it's been it's been a it's been a fun week to to talk about those two things. And I do feel like from the IRR side, we I think we are the greatest threat to Jacob Zuma in the country right now. Um, Would you like to explain why? Because isn't he supposed to go back to jail now? Didn't the, the court say no parole for you? But then it had this little weird caveat. But uh, no parole for you, but actually, you know, the Correctional Services Department can kind of decide whether you've served the time or not, even though you were illegally released, which... By the Correctional mm-hmm. Services Department? Yes. So it's like saying, well, look, you know, you stole this car. Um, and it's very bad that you stole this car. So give it uh, back. Give it back. But also, you know, maybe you could not give it back if you, if you think that you need it more. <laughs> if, you, if you think that you need to not give it back... Actually, I mean, what the, it's kind of worse than that because the court said very clearly he has to go back to jail, but then you can release him immediately or after a while. So it's like, you stole right. the car, so, you have to give it back, but then you can take it again. Immediately, uh, yes. You can, you, can, you can go and you just need to punch the clock to say yeah, that you've been through. in, right? Write in the visitor's book and then you can get out again if the correctional services says that you can, you should. As a remedy, by the way, the second theft is going to be a remedy for the first theft. So this this <laughs> strikes me very much as um, you're familiar with the phrase hospital pass. Yes. You see that the, the, you, you've got the ball in like rugby, American football, something like that. And you see all of the largest, strongest, most bloodthirsty people on the other team charging towards you. Mm. And so you quickly pass the ball to the person immediately to your left and run in the opposite direction so that it is not you who gets destroyed. Yeah. And, so the Speaking, court is passing it to the yes. Department of Correctional Services, being like, you guys have to... Yeah, yeah. Look, very bad, very bad. But uh, uh, why did you make the decision that ultimately determines the consequences? <laughs> <laughs> and, if you, and, if you, and if you say he can go, then all the media is going to say you're terrible and you're, and, you're cap- and you're like captured and corrupt and it's just political favors. And if you, and if you say he's got to stay in jail then you're going to be accused of being a puppet of white monopoly capital or Mossad or the CIA. Or and, and in the worst case forces. scenario, maybe someone will try to start another whole series of riots across right. the country. So, yeah. yeah. So it's not great. And we're washing our hands of it. So, I mean, part of what's amazing is that at least according to the judgment, and I do kind of remember this happening. It's just so long ago. It is the Helen Susman foundation of all places that like, gave the court this excuse uh, to do the hospital pass to the Department of Correctional Services by under pressure of questioning saying, you know, I was kind of, it was a, it was a difficult day being in the SEA because the DA, the Susman Foundation and AFRI Forum were all main parties trying to put Zuma back in jail. And theoretically they were supposed to argue different things but they all argued exactly the same thing, as far as I could tell, for most of the time. And the only guy who's not guilty in this is, was the DA's uh, advocate, Jamie, who I thought was was my hero of um, the COVID election tr- uh, court case. He started and he just went out guns blazing so hard for freedom uh, and against he, – he, anyway – I thought he I thought he shifted the Overton window at the start of that Concord day and and he 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 was like a dude running through glass walls getting blood all over his face like getting concussions 
because he was not holding back at all. So he gave the judges the most to push against. Um, and and he came out really bloody, first dude through the wall. But he sort of opened the pathway for everyone else to come in and sound very uh, sort of circumspect and uh, caveated thoughtful, and, right. and thoughtful and like flipping, just keep laying the flag in the in the reasonable ground and very, very far away from where it started before he spoke which was in the sort of media space, um, broader context where people at the time were literally like, I don't know if South Africa can have an election because what if so many people die of COVID? Um, and never mind all the other countries that managed to pull it off. Uh, and never mind the fact that, you know, on the seroprevalence studies, everyone's already infected. Uh, so he, so the DA came out and, and he wasn't, I didn't think he was as slick this time, honestly, but it's partly because he had to do the most important technical work of the case in my opinion i don't know maybe i'm being too schmoozy here but um the the tr the toughest thing about the case the way that it was being run against zuma was you know we disagreed with everyone because we said he shouldn't have been in the parole system in the first place but what everyone else was saying was he's in the parole system and and the issue is that the medical parole board said no you can't get out but the section 75 of the correctional services act says that the national commissioner of correctional services is the one who ultimately decides whether you can get out or not. And so that makes it seem like the parole board is just giving him advice. It's like your friend, you know, you tell your friend you're thinking about getting married or buying a house and it's your best friend. He's your oldest friend. He's a good dude. He's a bit older. He's experienced. But if he tells you don't, don't buy that house and you really want to buy the house, you still go buy the house. So maybe it's that kind of system. And you, and how do you tell whether it's that kind of system or not? One thing to do is to look at this same law, Section 79, and see how it really details it. And I've got to tell you, there's two readings there. And, you know, the one side just wants to hammer on the one reading, and the other side wants to hammer on the other reading. And English language is a bit of a slut. I've said it before. Uh, you know, <laughs> leg spreads uh, across uh, two different meanings. Sorry. Okay. Right can mean direct, or it can mean the opposite of left. Uh, you know, <laughs> Straight can mean a sexual orientation or also the shortest distance between you know, a path. Anyway, there's all kinds of words that have all kinds of meanings. And, uh, and, the and the case couldn't have been properly decided, I believe, just on that basis. What you needed to do was go into the regulations. And the regulations had been changed after Shabir Sheikh had been released against the parole board's advice on the basis of the commissioner's decision. And then the regulations were changed specifically to address that to say that that can't ever happen again and to try and set up a system where now you can only get through. First, the parole board has to say yes. Then the commissioner can say no if he wants. He can say this person deserves medical parole in the sense that they're sick, but I'm not going to let him out because I think he's a dangerous society. So tough tackies, dude. You're dying of cancer, but I think if I let you go, it's going to take you five minutes. You're going to strap a bomb to your chest and walk into parliament and blow everything up so i'm not letting on so he can turn a yes into a no but he can't turn a no into a yes and that's what the regs say but they say it in flippin legalese up the wazoo like it's it is the the way that it is done is excruciating in its uh i don't want to say indirectness i want to say in its overwroughtness so he had to deal with that. And he, oh my word, like for half an hour going over the same, for an hour, dude, going over the same. 
how do you read this word in this regulation, in this section? Then how do you read oh, the same word in oh, the law, no, 75, just, I, then 79, then back to the regulation, the same series of questions. That's torturous. And so you had to deal with that, and it really interrupted the flow. But it was important legal work. And then he dealt with all the other issues. Then you comes, see, that's what they that's what they don't put in law and order. Jeez, <laughs> dude, it's like yeah, it is like a like a boring maths equation without a chalkboard. Somehow, sometimes I feel like the one thing the law hasn't figured out is like a chalkboard would definitely, you know, make it quicker sometimes. Anyway, after him came the Swissman Foundation, and they said all the same things. They said at the beginning, we're not going to say all the same things that the DA said, but we just want to go over like a couple of things in our papers. They just read their whole papers, and their papers said everything that the DA had just said again. And then AFRI Forum came, and they had a special point to make, but they flipping first said all of the same things that the other two parties had said again. So they took four hours between them. You know, it could have been the DA one hour, Susman Foundation 10 minutes, Every Forum 10 minutes, but they took four hours. And that's why Dali and Porfu got to take five hours. And that's why the IRR only got to get its voice in there uh, at like nine o'clock at night by the time the court, you know, by the time everyone had, time had to cancel their flights. souls and, were dead <laughs> from listening to five hours of Dali and Porfu. So I was already a little bit frustrated with these guys for not just flipping. I don't understand. Uh, and maybe it's because I'm inexperienced. Like my view is if someone else has already said it, the thing about court is you don't have to say it twice. We can repeat. We have to repeat ourselves on podcasts and in, especially in personal relationships. You know, if, if Elena doesn't tell me three times in a row that we're going to Pretoria on Saturday, then I'm going to forget. And you know, what a sweetheart for being patient with me. But like in court, you're supposed to just have to say it once. No, no, no. Say it over and over again. But Susman Foundation then conceded under pressure, they said, at least according to the judgment, that on the separation of powers doctrine, the court must defer to the executive on the question of whether Zuma's time outside of jail counts as time served. Separation of powers says, you know, if you're the court, you've got to kind of defer to the executive and uh, both have got to fall under the rules written by parliament. But the whole point of executive, you know, we've talked about this before, Chevron deference, the Americans call it. That's like if someone is, you know, the, the archetypal sense of it is if parliament says we're going to increase the tax rate, the uh, they, parliament passes a money bill that's been tabled by the executive, by the minister of finance. He says, we need more tax. We need more money. We're running out of money. We need to do 7% wage increase. So we're going to raise taxes. I mean, that is flipping dumb. You can't tax South Africa any more than you're already taxing it. There's a thing called the Laffer curve. It means if you raise the tax rates, people are just going to hide their money better. So you're actually going to get less money. Yeah. Uh, so all it's a the, stupid the, idea. All the economic yeah. damage of raising the taxes will mean that there's just less money to tax. Less revenue. Sorry, exactly. Less economic activity to tax to get revenue. It's a really bad idea. But can you take that to court? Can you go to the court and say, I want to sue the government. It's not allowed to tax me anymore because it's past the Laffer curve and here's 20 economists that say it's a bad idea. No, you can't. Obviously, if you were allowed to do that, you would end up having the courts writing the budgets, the courts setting monetary and fiscal policy, and we would be a Byzantine empire run by a bunch of dudes in robes uh, that are unelected and that flip and sniff tea leaves and uh, drink uh, tobacco 
to I would you know, I would someone even wrote a book called The Byzantine Republic and in fact it argues that the Byzantine system as archaic as it seems to us was more democratic than what you've just described. That's how bad that system that you've just described would be. <laughs> exactly. It's worse than Byzantine. I'm sorry for insulting the Byzantines by dragging hey, their name into this. <laughs> and can I can I please, you know, in this in this time, in this world of where people are very particular about what names they go under and uh, what terms they're called by. May I suggest you please call it Eastern Roman Empire. Thank you very much. Correct. Very good. Uh, no, keep it going. So, <laughs> so dude, it's a tough world. And uh, in this tough world, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta hold on to some of the democratic process. You've got to hold, you really, really, really have to hold on to the idea that reasonable people can disagree about some things. And the democratic right. process is there to keep those disagreements alive. And other things, it's just crazy. And the courts are there to say, dude, you did the crazy. It's no longer reasonable. You have to go to jail. Yeah. The courts are to clean up the messy ends. They're not to set the parameters of the whole thing, really. Yeah. Yeah. So, it, you know, in this context, uh, the notion of deference to preserve separation of powers is that the courts shouldn't second guess unless they absolutely have to an executive decision. And insofar as they second guess it, the standard standardly is either rationality or a section 36 analysis. And they, which section 36 is the part of the bill of rights, which says what you have to do if you want to reduce someone's rights, compromise someone's rights. And it lays out various factors. And, uh, and the rationality test is, you know, even harder for the government to fail uh, the Section 36 test says you do have to think about um, whether there was a better way to do it. But still there, there's got to be some difference. If it's like a counterfactual, would this have really been better? Unless it's perfectly clear, uh, the government, the executive, you've got to defer. So here's the thing. That is the test about reviewing reviewing executive decisions. Once you've reviewed the decision, the court has to make the remedy if it finds that the decision was unlawful. There's no difference in remedy. So, you know, the, the, to, to put it back in the metaphor, the analogy you were using, you know, if, you, if, if someone says, look, the government's driving around in that car and, and says to the court, and, th and that car's been stolen. You know, the government isn't doing anything useful with it. They're just going on a joyride. They're basically stolen it. The court has to be very, very careful of that kind of thing. If the government comes and says, you know, we did take the long route around. It was the scenic route. But we were, we were going to a conference. And, you know, we stopped along the way at the Wimpy. And we actually went for a weekend away at Umschlange. But we were going to the conference. There's a rational connection between using the car and getting to the conference. And this, you know, the right. route is somewhat higgledy-piggledy, but it's getting you there. Yeah, the it's a waste, but you're still going in the right direction. The, the court's got to say, okay, okay, that's fine. That's not theft. That is a stupid government. And if you want a good yeah, government, that's you just being inefficient. Vote for a good government, dummies. Don't, don't come tell us about that. Don't call that theft. You know, the cop's gone to the donut store and he's stuffing his mouth with donuts. That's not a crime. It's just a joke and, no. <laughs> and we can handle it. So, but if, if the court finds that these oaks have said they're going to the conference 
in Umschlanga, but they're driving towards, you know, Springbok, Gabon, <laughs> you know, Gabon. They got they're in yes. Botswana. Like we found them in Botswana. They were try, they were trying to get from Durban to Umschlanga, but we found them in Botswana. There's it's there that is theft. Okay, and once you you've you, there's no longer any deference. You don't say okay that's theft, but you get to decide whether you want to, you know, uh, keep the Go car. Go to the conference or not? Yeah, or keep the car, or whatever. No, it's like this is theft. We've caught you, so now we have to fix the situation. Anyway, so the courts know that, but because Susman, on you know, on the there's this principle that if my interest is to punish you, if I then concede an argument uh, that keeps you out, then that really counts more strongly. Uh, uh, yeah, you know. So, because Susman was was on the side trying to put Zuma behind bars, the fact that they def- said, "Yeah, we think that executive authority does mean that you've got to leave it to the courts. You've got to leave it to the department to decide." That was something that the SEA could quote, and without any other real judicial oh, no. argument that I could understand. They, you know, they could just have this narrative point, you know. These guys were trying to put them away. Even they said that the department should decide. Anyway, so that's that's a long kind of beef about the Sisman Foundation. Generally, you know, I suppose it's a little bit like because they're our cousins, maybe, in the sense that Helen Sisman, you know, two crickets is named in her homage. Right, and they're very much from the liberal camp, as IRL was. Yeah, so maybe I'm, maybe I'm uh, being... Maybe I've spent too much time um, chirping about this, but it does feel disappointing, and it does mean that going forward, mm. Zuma's not likely to spend much time behind bars unless the IRR argument wins, according to which right. there's no question of deference in the first place because he never should have been in the parole system. He never should have been in the correctional services. He was a, he was a contemnor. That's a whole different kettle of fish, and... Uh, if he ever wants to get early release, he needs to go back to jail. The order needs to be followed. And if he wants to get early release, he should do that the way contemnals do that. People who've violated court orders, there's only one way for them to do that. Just go back to the same court that made the order and try to purge their contempt by saying sorry and giving the evidence in some other way that they otherwise would have given. Uh, so you and that's explained the, the theoretical reason why, he sh- why Zuma should fear the IRR more than any other organization. But in practical terms... Was this going to be back in court again? For sure. The Department of Correctional Services had 48 out. Remember, they had to put Zuma back in jail for long enough to fill out the departure form. <laughs> Dude, he had to do a drive-by. He had to do a KFC drive-by. He had to go there for long enough for someone to throw two chicken wings and He's like, oh, I, have, I have to do that? I'm so busy today. Can't we make it tomorrow? Come on. Dude, he's too busy suffering from terminal monopoly something. capital. Yeah, something. <laughs> terminal something, something. I mean, look, to be fair, you know, he will die at some point, you know, because all human beings die at some point. Yes. <laughs> so I guess in a sense, we've all got a terminal condition. It's called life. Yeah, yeah. No, amen. And sometimes I wear it lightly, and sometimes, like Nicholas today... <laughs> Can, I feel it's heavy I, on my shoulders. <laughs> can, can, I, can I just uh, remind everyone that Shapir Sheikh has been out on parole since 2009? 
<laughs> you want to talk about terminal conditions? <laughs> he's really, he's really stretching the, the bounds. Beating the odds, hey? You know, when, amazing. When oh, the divine oh, forces, lovely. When the divine forces intervene to uh, to save people, it, it's they, so they, weird. They, out of they all choose the people, so strangely. <laughs> yeah, the, the, all the people the divine forces could have chosen. Uh, miracle oh cure after miracle cure, it, get, it went to shape. So practically, if, if, the, if the, we the ever correction... get a sensible government in this country, who knows if that's ever going to happen? It may never happen, but if it does happen, someone needs to take a serious look at how we do parole <laughs> because this is not great. It's well, so the, so that but that amendment to the regulations that I was mentioning really does mean that a Shabir Sheikh type thing can never happen again. Zoom has come the closest to pulling it off, and he only got as far as he did because of how profoundly corrupt the correctional services system was. Like the, I would right. say the rules on paper, although, like I said, this, the DA council had to take an hour going through them. But once you, you put it up on a chalkboard, it, they are as good as it's going to get. Um, at this stage, you just need people to actually try a little bit to, uh, to, to, you know, take it seriously and, and, it, and it should be fine. Um, but in, so in practical terms, the Correctional Services Department has taken the judgment up on appeal. Um, so we're going to have to see if DA, Susman, AFRI Forum, if they want to take it up on appeal too. So to go to the Concord. You will have to see if the Concord accepts it. Um, but I think that the Concord will accept it. I think that all of the other parties will join. And I think that we're probably going to have to go there because we're the only guys making this argument. And um, and the SEA rejected our argument, but they did so. I thought really it was really dangerous the way that they did. Um, because they they kind of did two things. The one thing that they do is they say, and I'm paraphrasing here. They say, look, whether the court order against Zuma was punitive or coercive. Whether the proceedings were civil or criminal, doesn't really matter. Uh, once you're in the prison system, you're a sentenced offender under the Correctional Services Act definition. It's right in the first page. And the rules for sentenced offenders are the rules of parole. So you're in the parole system. You know, you can apply for parole for good behavior or for medical reasons or whatever. And it must be granted or denied. You're in that jurisdiction. And we're saying that's not true, right? And we're saying that's not true because the Concord said that's not true, because the law says that's not true, because that is definitely not true. There is this category. I mean, it's flipping scary in a way, dude. The courts, I don't know. I, tell me if I've told you this all before, but like the, 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 the really scary thing is this. Um, I, I was talking about how the IRR's interest here, you know, it really isn't the case that we, I'm not especially, I quite like Zuma. I've always thought he's a fairly charming guy. Um, and I've, yeah, didn't we do a whole podcast once on how he was, if, if only he was a force for good. Yeah. And how I, I, you know, I've bred teamed like, you know, how I think I actually played the role of the guy who thought that probably at a certain stage in his life, he couldn't have flipped back, but that his Robin Island version um and early 90s version yeah could have been a great guy okay so i think that 
people need to know the following thing. We said we're going in on a rule of law argument. You know, we want the rule of law to apply. And part of the notion there is no one's above the law, no one's below the law. So don't treat Zuma differently just because he was former president and is politically important. But here's the thing about the rule of law. You know, it's, it's the kind of term everyone uses, but does everyone know what it means? I think you were at the IRR uh, back in two, uh, 2018 when John Kane Berman came to one of the very early liberal clubs and I was talking about the rule of law, I think, or someone else was doing it. Let me just say it was me. And he was like, ah, I don't think you know what you're talking about. And I think I'm going to have to curb your mental hair and tell you. <laughs> I remember that. I remember that. There is a difference between the rule of law and law and order. And law and order is, you know, I, I can't do it as well as he could because not as well educated. But law and order is like is like the TV show. You know, it's about making sure that people aren't uh, urinating on the streets, that, uh, you know, you Setting can phone the police. Things, killing each other, stabbing each other, raping each other, all that kind of stuff. You can tell there's a breakdown in law and order when there's a riot. Uh, but you can have law and order without having the rule of law. So in lots of the Soviet Union, there was law and order, but there was not the rule of law. Uh, and in China today, there's definitely law and order, but very definitely not the rule of law. Exactly, exactly, exactly right. And so what is the rule of law? It doesn't just mean that there's rules. It means that, amongst other things, no one is above or below. It means that the right. rules are explicable, the, the, are legible, and are, have a predictable effect. Right. Not, not arbitrary decisions of bureaucrats and politicians who can just decide... Well, you know, actually today, uh, I don't feel like this person should be charged with murder. <laughs> kind of. So, so if a law was written, Nicholas Lorimer is the new uh, commissioner of Indian affairs or whatever, white affairs. Right. Uh, <laughs> thinking back to that American example. He, <laughs> he says that your behavior is bad for whiteness, then you go to jail. And if he says your behavior is good for whiteness, then you get three brownie points. There's no way to predict or it's not legible. It's not cognizable. It's not predictable. Yeah, it's not maybe I'm in a bad mood one day. Maybe someone pays me a bribe one day. And that's exactly why you want the rule of law. Because when you have the rule of its alternative, the rule of man, uh, justice of is, uh, yes, is, is, yes. is completely um, unpredictable. Uh, you can't manage it. And it's really susceptible to corruption and chaos. Yeah, you start sucking up to whoever is going to make the, the judgment call. Uh, so, and and you know, my example sounded kind of silly, but there really are laws that get struck down because they say, you know, like uh, because they've got vague standards. Right. Uh, so, so, but here's the challenge. So, the law has to be predictable, explicable, legible. In that sense, uncontestable, right? For there to be the rule of law. But Nicholas, if the law was so clear that you always knew which way the judgment is going to go, why would there be any need for lawyers? Well, you know, this is what I've long been saying, is we should just make the law nice and clear so we don't need the lawyers. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, we don't live in that world, which is why we need the lawyers. <laughs> 
So it's not to say that there is no rule of law just because sometimes there are edge cases, sometimes there are difficult interpretations that need to be made, and that lawyers, in other words, have a value-add proposition and deserve sometimes to make money because there really is an illegibility issue that needs to be resolved. Yeah, and you have the you have the problem, particularly as you go over distance, that it's sometimes the meaning of words is not always clear, as you described in that example where the DA lawyer had to go through picking out what all the words mean. So, so the rule of law is complicated. Another part of the rule of law is no one's allowed to stand in judgment in, for their own complaint. That is basic, basic, you know, medieval days, you offend the kingdom and the king will be the judge and he will decide whether to chop off your hand or your head or let you go free. Right. And in, 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 so, you know, people, one of the reasons that they put the king above the legal system in a lot of these countries in the Middle Ages was because we can't have a situation where the king gets to just has to decide on his own crime. Guilt. Yeah, yes, if guilt. he's accused, if he's sitting in the... So here's the problem with contempt cases. The court is the offended party. So, and just by the way, the notion of separation of powers back in John Locke's day, you know, just on a sort of semantic level, comes down to, uh, in part, the notion that the government has to be split in such a fashion that you can take the government to court. So part of the reason you need the courts to defer to the executive is you really need the executive to defer to the courts if some executive official is taken to court for bribery or corruption or if some kind of department is taken up for review for having an order that violates the law. The courts have got to decide. And to a layman, that can seem like, hold on, the government is deciding whether the government's allowed to do that. And you've got to be like, no, because there's a separation of powers. The courts get to decide from the executive and they're separate and there are all these institutional checks and balances put in place to make sure that they don't that that uh, the executive can't bully the court out of uh, a position of impartial judgment. So it's complicated, right? But but and we and we're dealing with it. We've got the separation of powers doctrine and that kind of deals with it. But but the you know the 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 president or the public prosecutor or the municipal official or the policeman, any of these guys do bad things, you can take them to the court, and that's a whole other thing. But what if the court wants to take you to court because what you did was offend the court? There's no other it can only take you to court, it can only take you to itself. Right. And this and is so even worse this, when it's the highest court in the land that does this. So the, if the highest court issues an order and someone refuses to obey the order, that can only be a complaint made by the highest court in the highest court to the highest court where the highest court is deciding, you know, whether its own complaint is legit. The alternative is to say the highest court can't issue orders, which is to render the highest court meaningless. The other alternative is to say if the highest court issues an order and you don't obey it, then no one can take you to court because the only one who could take you to court would be the highest court. And anyone else who took you to court would have to take you to the highest court. And it would amount to the same thing, which is that the highest court has to decide whether or not uh, the highest court uh, has been harmed in the first place, which violates the notion of the rule of law. So it's a nightmare. It's a total flipping nightmare. The notion of contempt of court sits in that space, uh, which I like to, one, it's like a think. David Lewis had this word think. You know, like if you really want to mess with a child's mind, I remember this happened to me. You ask them, do you think the light in the fridge is off when the fridge is closed? <laughs> yes. 
And it's like, oh my, ah, you're hurting my brain. Because uh, you open it, you can see the light, but then you close it, but now you can't see at all. So maybe the light stays on. Maybe How are you going to figure it out? There are there are certain things where the overlap between the between two inputs or really between an input and a standard of evaluation are so aligned that you can never get a, 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 an answer, a straightforward path from A to B. Um, and, you know, the Fink's, the, I think the most famous one is like, if a tree in the forest falls, does it make a sound? Like, can you make a judgment right. about that without taking a leap of faith? Can you make an empirical judgment about that? Um, and, you know, since David Hume, since before that, there's, there's been this sort of shrugging, slightly depressed acknowledgement that you can't, that there isn't a straightforward, there's no way to tell the child for sure why it is that trees still make noise, even when no one can hear them, or why the light's still on. You know, with a, with a light in the fridge, if you've got a teenager and you can do some electrical engineering, you can kind of test the wires in the back to show something. But there, but there are real limits to how far our carpets, our mental carpets can go to covering the room without there being some kind of bump in the carpet, uh, without there being some mismatch between the size and shape of the mental space that we're covering and the size and shape of the mental canvas or map that we're using to cover it. And that mismatch, uh, the square root of negative one in mathematics, is that a number? Is it not a number? The, 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 there are all these, but anyway, contempt is a very good example of that in the law. And and the way that the law deals with it in South Africa and everywhere else is to say that the judges have this power. They can say, dude, we ordered you to do this. You didn't do it, so we're throwing you in jail. But then they have to break another rule. Usually the rule is if the court throws you in jail, then you're out of the court's hand. You can never go back to that court and ask for a rethink on the sentence. The court sentence is final. You can't go back to the same court. You could go to a higher court to appeal. But once you've been to the highest court of appeal that you can go to, the sentence is final. If you want to get out early, you go to the parole board. You don't go back to the court. That's the rule. But for contempt, that rule is also broken. And the court says, you were naughty. You pulled your pants down. You flashed your bum. You spat at us. You insulted us. You refused to obey our order. We're throwing you in jail to teach you a lesson. And if you show that you've learned your lesson, you can come back to us and ask us for early release. So the, well, the first rule we're breaking is we're judging in our own complaint. But the second rule we're breaking is that we will reconsider the sentence if you purge your contempt or at least partially purge your contempt. And when you, and you, when you see those rules together – you see how the, the major concern gets ameliorated. The major concern is that Gabriel's been to court uh, and I saw, you know, uh, dudes disrupt the court proceedings by singing Dubulai Bunu in the back. And I saw Julius Millem a lie and say things that aren't true on the witness stand. And guys are singing Kill the Boer on the way out. There were all kinds of things. Ernst Roots of Avriforum, uh, I think, I'm not sure, allegedly, whatever, took a photograph Um of uh, a meeting inside the court that the judge had expressly said, you can't take a photograph of it. Um, he was, uh, there was a trial within a trial on contempt of court for Ernst Ritz on that. And he had to plead like that. He didn't quite hear the judge. There was 
some kind of judgment that's been written down on that issue. I don't know which way it went. But, you know, there was like flipping. When I was there for that African Malema case, it was tense, the contempt of court issues around. I was so afraid of not lying, but just like accidentally saying the wrong thing, contradicting myself and therefore perjuring myself and therefore being for up there for some contempt of court charge and, and then you can throw me in jail right. and who knows what's going to happen. I was terrified. Right. And partly, you know, you imagine, a, uh, I thought that was, you know, I, I quite liked the judge. He seemed to be a, a very reasonable fellow. I didn't like his judgment. Didn't understand it, I should say. Um, in some senses, I did like it, but anyway, didn't understand it. Anyway, in a really... <sighs> You know, if I think of some of the cases I've covered in rural South Africa, in Pumalanga and Northwest, there are some judges I would be terrified of being dragged up onto a witness stand in front of because if they asked me honestly my views on race and I expressed non-racial principles as being my principles, that could be construed as racist according to, uh, you know, a, a kind of uh, transformative agenda notion where, you know... If, where you have to be racist in order to not be racist. And 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 I could be considered as insulting the court. Um and and the court and the judge could throw me in jail for refusing to answer a question that I say is irrelevant or, or badly framed or I reject the premise or uh answering a question in a fashion that he doesn't like. No, and I and it's if I get thrown in jail by the same guy in whose court I'm supposedly making the offense. And it's, and it's not fair. I can't, it's like the usual avenues to appeal and to early release and to all kinds of things. They're just, it's just a different ball game. It's a very scary scenario. And, you know, if, for example, if he, if he throws me in jail, he says, you get 15 months because I ordered you to testify about this and you just kept not answering the questions properly and going in philosophical circles about non-racialism. And, and what you call non-racialism is actually not non-racialism. You know, we kept telling you, if you say non-racialism means uh, not judging someone by their race one more time, when you know very well non-racialism means in this country that we must have equality of outcomes according to race. If you deny that interpretation of the uh, constitution one more time, I'm throwing you in jail for 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 expressing a neo-colonial uh, mischaracterization insult of our constitution and the basis of our court proceedings. Uh, you're going to get 15 months, and then I get that 15 months, and I've got to go through a parole process if I want to get early release. Which means I've got to be there at like the whole 15 months. That's crazy. Whereas, under the real system that we actually have, if something like that were to happen. You could have a media scandal, and insofar as it was my fault, I could purge my contempt and write things on paper to express how I'm purging. Like, okay, I see this misunderstanding, but let me clarify. And they would have to reconsider. And if they didn't reconsider, in this instance, I'd be able to take it on appeal. And if I got to the constitutional court, we just have to, at some level, trust that they're not going to abuse that process. But insofar as they do abuse the process, they open themselves up to my challenge going back to the same court every time I feel like making a new argument. So I can embarrass them to the maximum if they have unjustly thrown me behind bars on a spurious allegation of contempt. So it's like a very weird hypothetical, but you know, the long and the short of it is, if, if you get thrown behind bars for contempt, and it's not real contempt, 
because you can climb back into the same court or go appeal at a higher court, you've got the maximum opportunity to ventilate your grievance in the most embarrassing situation for the court if the court made the wrong call in the first place. And that is kind of the last esteemy safeguard that we have, but it's the only real safeguard that we have in contempt cases because contempt cases live in this bump in the carpet space where all the other separations of powers and institutional balances aren't available right. to check it. And the and SEA the the has thrown that out the window completely for Zoom. Right. At the end of the day, we do always have the thing that can control the courts, which is uh, that the legislature has power over them, right? Yeah. So fearing the courts in a sense, as long as the legislature continues to function, um, the legislature can always protect you from a court that's gone completely insane. Yeah, they could rewrite the rules of contempt to Dungus, Dungus, Dungus. But so or, with Zoom's yeah, or case. They could impeach the justices. Just to. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But in Zuma's case, what the SEA has said is it doesn't matter what kind of contempt proceeding it is. If you get thrown behind bars, you're out of the court's hand. You can't go back for a, a, a sentence uh, reduction, Dennis. You've got to be like an ordinary criminal. Zuma, they're saying Zuma was like an ordinary criminal. You've got to treat him like an ordinary criminal. And you've got to treat everyone else <laughs> like an ordinary criminal. Dude, Zuma was never an ordinary criminal. The concourse... Yeah, not not yet, anyway. He's he's still on trial for the corruption stuff. Yeah, yeah. He should be, probably be an ordinary criminal. But the, the Concord said, and it's very clear in the law, he was never an accused person in terms of Section 35 of the Constitution. He never had a fair trial in the sense of a criminal trial, in the sense that, amongst other things, he never had the right to appeal. So when Zuma's lawyers say, you can't treat our guy like an ordinary criminal because he was never an accused person. He was never given a fair criminal trial. Uh, he can't be a sentenced offender. He can't be an ordinary criminal. We say you're right. Of course you're right. It's in black and white. But the SEA has rewritten the whole story to say you've got to treat not just him, but every single person across the country who's guilty of contempt as an ordinary criminal. And there are lots of cases, you know, like tax law, insolvency. There's all kinds of cases where accountants and stuff have to come and bring evidence. And if they don't do it in time or there's any irregularities, contempt is the the threat that keeps them in check. So it's not just always celebrity things or like, you, you know, kill the bird. Like there, there's pretty banal cases. All of those guys now get reclassified as ordinary criminals somehow in order to make this case make sense. So so to me, from a from a really principled perspective, a perspective that's not about Zuma or even the evidence that I think you ought to give, one of the reasons that I would like to see if we can get the IRR to join again at the Constitutional Court level is because I want the Constitutional Court to consider this um, and to and to avoid what I think would be a very dangerous outcome of allowing the SEA to just rewrite the rules, if I've got that right. And if mm. I've got it wrong, I think the best way to figure that out is going to be... Well, to have them explain it, right. Through, through a challenging process. Because we've got... Right. You know, I've spoken to really smart lawyers who, who, who say I'm not wrong. Um, no, I think you've made a very good case for why exactly that should be before the Constitutional Court. And uh, I, hoped, I hope that that argument is not yet finished and it comes up again. 
Yeah, and I've got another argument that's even more important, but I'm not. I'm going to save that for another day. Should we? Uh, should we close up? Yeah, I think that's a good idea. Um, Do you have any recommends? I have one. Please. So I came across this YouTube channel called Indigo Traveler. Uh, Wait, guy... before we go, no, no, before we go there. Yeah. yeah. Uh, there is one more topic that I want to ask you about. So, Nicholas, uh, yes. what do you think of uh, Ramaphosa's visit to your king and royal family? And uh... <laughs> He's not my king, unless the British give me a passport, in which case he will be. <laughs> but they haven't done so yet. But, man, uh, Ramaphosa, you know, so I, I saw two... two two takes on this. One was the initial news reporting, which said that Ramaphosa had given a speech to the British Parliament and been hailed as a hero, as a, as a restorer of Nelson Mandela's vision, as one of the British politicians said. And they praised him specifically for Sia Colisi leading the uh, Rugby World Cup squad on to victory. Uh, wow. And that, once again, the Brits wow. had, no. <laughs> had fallen for it. Thank the you. ANC... The ANC has for very many decades been tricking many people overseas, particularly the British, into thinking that it's something it's not. Um, and this just looked like another example of that. But I also heard that there were some uh, people who watched the thing, who have talked to some of the MPs, particularly uh, the Tory MPs there, and, and the impression that they gave was that actually, despite the sort of... Um, the fanfare and the applause and the sort of, it was all much more superficial. And that in reality, Ramaphosa's speech, which in many ways was just a call for more money to be given to us so that we can, you know, do climate change fighting thingies or something, uh, was actually kind of a bit tone deaf to the UK because they're going through lots of uh, economic wibbledy wobbledies at the moment. And that really he just came off as someone who is at the door, um, shaking the ball, demanding money, and the Brits sort of going, okay, but this is not our problem. Why are you here? Mm. So I'm not sure which is the prevailing view. In fact, it's very possible that both of those views sort of coexist with each other in different places in the US, in the UK political spectrum. But um, I don't know, Gabriel. What do you think? Which one do you think is more likely to be the overwhelming impression that, the, that we're left with here from the Brits? Do you think that they fell for Rumpel's shtick? And he's he's a charming, charismatic guy, so it's not it wouldn't be unlike them to fall, particularly when they're so, you know, there's this there's this horrible trend in in modern British people of self hatred, and uh, that means that anyone from from a former colony makes them all suddenly go very strange and very apologetic. <laughs> I think I'm just. One of apparently one of Winston Churchill's uh, more common stern rebukes was to call someone wobbly, and I think it's because he obviously had such a wobbly chin and a wobbly belly, and you know there's something about the like Edwardian British archetype, late Victorian as well. You know this sort of the U the England and the UK as like a land of invention. And a land of possibility, but it's like a lot of sort of quirky dudes on bicycles going over cobblestones with 
sort of flasks and petri dishes sort of clanking in their uh, wicker baskets on their back. You know, so it is like a, a wobbly place, dude. It's like a hobbity wobbly. Uh, uh, there's a hobbly wobbly romance, I think, to to or British shtick. And you know, if you think about the Ministry of Silly Walks or just about anything, they literally wobble around. Um, and Churchill was a wobbler, but but I think that the 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 thought there is that with all the wobbling hats and bellies and double chins and wicker baskets and tea trays, there is underneath all of that. There's like a very stiff upper lip. There's a spine. There's a certitude. There's a fortitude. There is a purpose. And there is a little island that has been guarded for a thousand years. And, <laughs> you know, so I think that, I, I think that, yeah, I, um, is the UK a bit wobbly? I think it's going through a wobble, man. I think that Brexit really isn't feeling so good. The, whether you, whether, whatever you think the causal factors are for the UK's underperformance in absolute terms and underperformance in relative terms to its sort of peer competitors. It's hard not to, it's, 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 it's politically difficult to avoid the thought that um, Brexit is a major difference maker in a negative direction. Uh, there's not a lot by way of trade deals with uh, former colony, colonial partners or the Commonwealth, which, you know, part of the idea is we can get out of the EU and we can make right, like a free trade, free trade deals with a whole bunch of countries around the world. So that hasn't been working out very well. Australia and New Zealand were the first two, but since then they're kind of stuck on India and really stuck on India because India has not condemned Russia and that's become a very important issue. Um, so Indian, as far as I can, as far as I can remember the UK Indian bilateral trade uh, negotiations uh, have completed on a minority of um, key interest uh, areas. Um, UK is kind of in trouble with uh, different bilateral trade with China and with the major East Asian powers, it's in trouble again. I'm thinking here, Japan, South Korea, Singapore, it's in trouble again because of their position vis-a-vis -vis the U.S., and the fact that since Biden replaced Trump, the biggest economy in the world and an economy that so many others follow is no longer interested in helping the Brexit narrative. In fact, is quite interested in harming the Brexit narrative. And so whereas I think a Trump-Johnson presidency premiership uh, or actually any conservative uh, twinning across the Atlantic would likely have um, the UK in a significantly better trading position, than it is in now. That's not the case. It's being it's being punished by the US because the Democrats don't like this idea. It's being punished by the Europe because the EU is terrified. Brexit success would be would would be an existential threat. The EU has to, in a sense, do everything it can to try and harm the UK right now. Uh, and the major other colonial power question was India, which is kind of interrupted by the war. So. The UK is 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 really in a wobble. It's not a pretend wobble. It's like a real wobble. Um, and I think when it looks to South Africa, it really wants 
I think that it's got two major interests, and one of them is to get us to turn against Russia overtly, and the other is to get us to break the back of what I was told by someone who of, of the most important green counter-narrative um, at the moment, which is that African countries should not be compromising at all. They should be getting right. as they much energy as possible. Industrializing as fast as they can to get as many people out of poverty as possible. Right. And if that includes green energy, great. But if that includes a lot more coal-fired power stations, so be it. Um, and I've spoke to someone who's at COP27 and who said that that narrative actually dominated on the ground. Um, that, you know, the, 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 the notion that you must now expect African countries to compromise their growth uh, for a green agenda was rejected. And the notion that you can sort of confusingly pretend like there's never a trade-off between green and efficiency uh, it was also rejected because obviously a lot of people want to say, ah, soda's just better no matter what. It's not. So um, so if South Africa can turn on Russia, I think that would kind of whatever other African countries are around that have any meaning would kind of lose their meaning. And if South Africa can turn against the poor in terms of uh, the green policy and saying, no, we'd rather, even if it does slow down our economic growth, um, we think it's more important to go green than anything else. That would really kind of be the final blow uh, in favor of green energy and against uh, fossil fuels and so on um, in the rhetorical space. Not the final blow, but it would be a real coup de grace. So I think the UK is the Conservative Party. I don't know what's holding the UK Conservative Party together other than a hatred for Russia and a love of green. And so I think South Africa really fits squarely uh, in their foreign policy uh, schema as a as a seriously symbolically important place that they need to be on side with. So I think they've had every interest in, I mean, the fact that Ramaphosa was the king's first foreign visitor, right? Uh, is, Your first is, world visit. I don't think that's... I don't think anyone else is explaining it this way, but I, I think it's because we are the most on the fence country that hasn't condemned the Russian invasion yet, but that could. And we are the most primed to say that uh, green is uh, Gaia is more important than saving poor people from poverty. We, we, we really are kingmakers in those, in those situations. So I think they've done everything that they can to make us look good. Hmm, an interesting theory. I'll need to think about it a bit, though, before I decide whether I agree with it or not. Well, let me add to it by saying this, that um, I did complain to you about this once before, and I wrote to The Economist um, and The Telegraph, I think, but they didn't publish it. You know, the UK government, I think it was Theresa May, but you'll correct me, they commissioned that independent inquiry into Can I just say? Racism. Yeah. Sorry, that Theresa May has uh, opened a chocolate shop now. I think she's still an MP <laughs> as well. And I think it is, she has never looked so happy as when she was opening that chocolate shop. Right. You sent me a picture. So, in a sense, I think she had got the last laugh. <laughs> I'm still, I'm, I'm her fan. I am a fan of Theresa May. I thought she was cool. Um, 
I can't remember which um, prime minister it was. I think it might have been her. Commissioned this uh, independent commission of inquiry to look into systemic racism in the UK. And the report came out like this year or last year. Do you remember that? And it basically yes. said, you know, there is some racism, but the UK is not systemically racist. Right. Uh, and that's where um, Minister for, what is it, uh, Equality or something, um, Kimi Badenoch, or former Minister for, for Equality, uh, uh, made a name for herself because she presented the report and fiercely defended it in Parliament. So I love that report because, you know, it is like the IRR, but if you gave us, you know, 100 million pounds. The British um, government's power. <laughs> but I flippin' hated that report because it started, because of how it started, it said majority white countries should all see the UK as being a role model. Oh. It's like, it's... it. Its whole idea is like, you know, it's better not to judge people by their race, your role models, your heroes, your villains, your, you know, the people you want to work with, the people you want to work against, who you want but to learn from. But it immediately concedes that way of framing the debates on page one. On page one, it's like, no, listen, guys, if you're a, if you're a majority black country, this is not for you. You are way different you know i don't want to say inferior i don't want to say superior let's say lateral you know you're just not the same kind of thing are you okay we're not all people we're white and white majority countries whole you know we've got our own standards okay so the other white countries it just reminded me of i often use this example you know the first time that I was subject to an explicit white code of conduct when I was like five years old. And some guy was like, dude, wipe your nose. You've got a little booger sticking out and that's no way for a white boy to behave. And I was like, what is it? <laughs> like, I know I'm, I'm, I know I'm supposed to not have boogers, but like what? And I'm usually don't. I'm like kind of anal little kid. What is going on? White people. Why is there a rule for white people? That's different. Why are you saying that your way of doing government, which is liberal, free market, non-racial, why are you saying that majority white countries should look at this and by implication saying that other countries, nah. I found it outrageous. And I think that uh, the Brits haven't figured it out, dude. I don't think that they have figured it out. And I think their FO, their foreign office, or their home office, or I don't know who it is, but I don't think they figured it out. Uh, I think uh, the there is something about the non-racial equation where they haven't filled in the variable yet. You know, they haven't they've they've done two plus two is four, and then four plus two is six, but they haven't done six plus two is eight. Um, and and so. In a way, I think that there's an important part, including of whoever produced that report, who looks at a guy like Ramaphosa and doesn't see another state leader, doesn't see someone like the prime minister, doesn't see someone like Justin Trudeau or Joe Biden or, frankly, Barack Obama uh, or anyone that's elected in a majority white country. They see someone who's been elected by black people and they don't see him as needing to... Uh, be held up to the same standards as a proper president. I'm 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 imputing a harsh view on your king and countrymen, 
but I, but like I, I said, I don't have the passport here. <laughs> I'm just teasing you, but but look, maybe maybe I am laying it on thick, but you know, I think there's I think there's at least something to think about there. And and I'll wrap it up by saying I think that loop. I think that the last time there was such a scandalously outrageous visit by a South African leader to the United Kingdom to the royal family of the United Kingdom. It was when Louis Boitzel visited in 1914. And <laughs> Saul Plyke had been like, dude, you can't be nice to this guy. He's flipping just passed a law that says black people can't own land in like 85% of this country. This guy's a maniac. And I'm not saying he's personally a maniac. Personally, he's amazing. Let me tell you about how amazing Louis Boitzel personally is. I'm now paraphrasing Saul Plyke, founder of the ANC. He... His own farm workers, I've visited those guys, and they're like, this is the nicest white guy in the world. This guy passed a law which says black people can't even be tenant farmers in so-called white South Africa, or else the owner has to pay like a flipping thousand pound fine, and that's like a million rond. He is paying that fine rather than removing his own black workers. He doesn't believe in his law so much that he's actually choosing to pay the fine rather than stick to the law. Right. Which means even more that you must put pressure on him because he's clearly got pressure on him from the other side. But, 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 but. So even though he's a nice guy, he's a maniac in the sense that he cares more about unity than anything else, than humanity. And so the free state our, uh, legislature in joining the union has insisted that like Indians aren't allowed to set foot on the free state after sunset and that the franchise that allows Cape coloreds and black people to vote in the western cape colony that that needs to be cancelled and that black people aren't to be allowed to own land anywhere excepting a few designated areas because otherwise whites are going to be overwhelmed and in order and it's not just the free state but they're pushing it in order to uh not cause too much of a rift between the brits and the boers between the volleys and the and the capies and the natalians and so on he's just you know uh scapegoating black people uh, with this law that's created terrible, terrible results and is going to have long-term disastrous effects on the country. It's really going to put a cap on growth. It's going to put a cap on social cohesion. It's evil. It's evil. And what happened? A few British newspapers wrote stern words about Louis Boita, just as the Financial Times wrote stern words about Ramaphosa, as did a couple of other, you know, proper newspapers. Good for them. Good for them. You know, this guy's pushing the terrible policies down the pipeline that could really ruin his country. If he gets his way, it's going to be the end of South Africa. Expropriation bill, employment equity amendment bill, public procurement bill, land court bill, uh, unlawful entering on premises bill, like just this flipping in every which way that you can. This game style race quote is being put in the hands of Tullis and Tracy. Oh my lord, you know, it's a it's a heavy, heavy day. This this is, you know, this is not as bad as the Land Act, for sure. Let's never make that mistake. Um, but the expropriation bill, land court bill, unlawful entering on premises bill, like it could have a greater negative utilitarian effect because there's more people around to affect negatively. And that it, the, those laws collectively really do achieve an expropriation without compensation. Land grab legitimized situation like in Venezuela, uh, where it is only the, the extra uh, unutilized parts of the land that, that, that were allowed to be taken by the government. But the effects were to send tens of millions of people into a horrible place. And that is the kind of thing that's happening here. And there's a few stern words in the newspapers, but what happened when the king met Louis Boiter? 
Nice, 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 nice. What happened when the Prime Minister met Louis Buerta? Nice, 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 nice. And why? It's because at the time the UK was terrified of South Africa going to Germany. Now it's Russia as some kind of ally. It's because the UK was dealing with its latest efforts at uh, splitting Europe and keeping itself separate but also inside uh, and wanted its uh, most mature African partner to play ball. And because it was terrified of alienating this country because even though it had won the war, it had done so at great cost and it was somewhat humiliated. As you said, there's a kind of self-hatred thing. The Brits hated themselves. There was, there was a strong sense by the 19-teens of humiliation uh, after Emily Hobhouse's exposure of the concentration camps that the Brits had imposed on the Boers. So, you know, the, the same kind of factors just caused them to turn a blind eye in the most galling, morally depraved kind of complacent way. It's one of the great shames. You know, the ANC was founded by Saul Plyke, basically in order to raise money for him to go to London and petition the king and the prime minister to, to stop this madness. And it failed. And I think Ramaphosa's visit is, a, is another great shame for the UK, uh, uh, for their government, which I have not seen making any statements critical of, of uh, what Ramaphosa is doing, although they should have. And the fact that the king invited him in the first place. You know, there, there is this game putting a more, you know, it's like two weeks, like while Ramaphosa's tickets are being booked, uh, our, our race laws are getting more aggressive in exactly the way that Tullis and Crazy. It just doesn't, it doesn't sit well with me. Like, I would much rather that the UK had invited, uh, you know, the Hichilema. Flip and invite Hichilema over. Yeah. The Hichilema is not getting nearly enough, or however you say his name, not getting nearly enough, uh, positive praise considering that I think he's been doing a really good job in Zambia so far but uh, nice you, you, yeah I'm, I've, mm. I've unloaded on you Nick because I'm unhappy with the Brits man <laughs> and you are my token British punching bag yeah. I... <laughs> you know I'll be much happier up. I'll be much happier if they give me the passport also anyone at the home office listening can I have the passport anyway um <laughs> You know what the main benefit of a British passport is? No. You don't have to get a visa to go to the United States. (laughs) (laughs) That's very good. Anyway. You're goddamn cynic. (laughs) So my recommendation (laughs) for for, for this this week is uh, there's a youtube channel called indigo traveler uh i'm not sure what he started as originally i've only come across his most recent series of videos and that is uh, basically he just goes and he to dangerous places in the world and just gives you a little bit of an idea of what they're like and he talks to people now i find his actual presentation style a little bit annoying however that being said this series of videos that i'm talking about specifically and recommending he went to south sudan which is i think a much forgotten part of the world um and a a tragic part of the world because it is the Oy. world's youngest country. Oy. And he just yeah, talks to yeah. some of the people there. And it is it is about as grim as you can imagine it as being. Um, the South Sudanese are really interesting. Uh, and it just you just see that country is just an absolute state. 
And it's not even really clear how it can get any better. Um, but still, it's an interesting series of videos nonetheless, just having a look at what South Sudan is like. Um, and also, contrary to what most people think, they think of Sudan, South Sudan must be the sort of same kind of thing. You know, you think of Sudan, you think of desert, right? Well, mm. South Sudan is actually kind of the opposite. It's swamp because uh, the Nile is very swampy down at that bit when it goes through South Sudan. So you're endlessly battling with floods and water and mud everywhere in the whole country. Uh, so, yeah, I recommend checking it out. Uh, also, there's, I think the best shot in the whole thing is just a brief sort of B-roll cutaway when he shows off a billboard on the side of the road and it says, stop cattle rustling and then has a uh, stop cattle raiding and then it has a number to call <laughs> to stop cattle raiding because that's like the civil war is actually mostly over in South Sudan now, but the violence continues just because cattle raiding has become so ubiquitous of a way of doing things that you have constant small scale skirmishes between different um, villages, essentially over cattle with AK-47s, which is hectic stuff. But anyway, that's my recommendation. Gabriel, yours? I'm trying to look up the name of this um, case, the the SCOTUS case about whether uh, race is more important than, uh, you know, ripping a child from its parents' home. It's flabbergasting. I will find the name and, and plop it in the in the description. Um, and if I can make a double recommendation, because that one is just, <laughs> I don't know if anyone's actually going to listen to it. But I, you know, I encourage one to, um, I would like to recommend, uh, the, 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 the soccer world cup. The, it, my favorite game. We're going to, being... we're going to see 1776 all over again, uh, tonight. Uh, although this may come out after the game has happened, but uh, <laughs> because Britain is playing the US or England, rather, uh, than playing the US. it's going to be very well, funny. <laughs> I mean, the Springboks are playing, are going to eat some roses tomorrow, uh, I hope. But um, so far, my favorite game was Ghana, Portugal. Um, so if I can find the highlight reel for that, I will. The last 20 minutes were just spectacular. I don't. I I refuse to just support any African team on the basis of Pan Africanism, but Ghana, yeah, Ghana are cool. Oh, like Ghana no, are man, cool. Ghana are awesome. I did Cameroon. I don't care. Senegal. I don't care. Ghana. Ghana is cool. Yes, yes, you're correct. Okay, so I will find and and dude and the tw- I mean, unfortunately, you know, spoiler alert, Ghana lost the game, but it was. They were playing, was, uh, what is it, Portugal, was it? I've got Portugal, dude. Oh, yeah. my. It was like 1-0, In the last, very last moment, Ghana nearly equalized. The last 20 minutes, there were five, six goals, five goals in the last 20 minutes, nearly six. It was amazing. It was amazing, amazing, the, amazing, the, amazing. The funniest thing in this game. World Cup has been Argentina's defeat by Saudi Arabia, though. Dude, Germany's defeat by Japan. Yeah, well, that's, that that that's second best thing in like the world. A, <laughs> that is just World War Two rewritten in everyone's favorite way. Hey, <laughs> if only if only the fascists just killed each other and Japan somehow and Japan won feels better. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I feel bleak about it because I actually I've supported the German team 
low-key since two well high-key actually since 2006 when i was there just after the world cup um and i really was a fan when they when they won it the whole way through but i think they're not going to make it through the qualifiers and neither is wales uh and we just got beaten by iran yeah so you know they they did well to get there but and theoretically i'm i have a reason to support wales but i just and russia didn't even i don't know how they're not in the tournament but they're not so all the kinds of teams that i would usually the only teams that i like every world cup i've ever watched since like 1998 my only rule has been never support France, never support England. <laughs> and at the moment, they're, too, they're the two hot teams. I mean, Spain's doing well 7-0, but also Spain is like the other team. I'll never support Spain. I don't know why. I just I made that narrative commitment when I was a kid, and I'm, and I'm not going to budge. So I think I'm going to have a miserable World Cup. Uh, uh, <laughs> but I'm enjoying – but, uh, you know, it's, that's, it's, not, it's not all about winning. Some of it's just about the spectacle. All right, and with that, keep the flag of liberty flying. Kr, kr.